Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find more information at our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. Our sponsor for this episode is CFS Financial. You can find a tab on CFS Financial at johnwarrenmedia.com. Please go there for more information. CFS Financial is a company that consults with primarily nonprofits, but also for-profit companies doing debt reconciliation, refinancing of real estate projects and the like, and consults on all things financial, including governance, strategic planning, and debt restructuring. CFS Financial. You can find more information at johnwarrenmedia.com. It is good to be with you today. Today, we are going to talk about the United States Constitution. And the reason we're going to do that is we're, we're going to try to just hit the highlights to talk about what it says and doesn't say, what it is and what it is not. It's really interesting. I haven't looked this statistic up in a while, but I believe I'm right in saying that this document only has 4,400 words, give or take a word or two. 4,400 words. It is a just a framework, as opposed to or contrasted with the Bible, which is a much more comprehensive book, is God's revelation to us and his thorough revelation to us. The U.S. Constitution is just kind of a guideline. And for those of you who've been to law school, you know that it is a limiting document. It is not intended to prescribe every aspect of American life. It is one of the most enduring governmental documents in the world. And that might be shocking to you because of the relatively young age of the United States of America. It has been amended 27 times, or we could argue it has been amended just 18 times because of the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments being a package deal. But there are 27 total amendments, but it has never been rewritten in its entirety. It has withstood the test of time. Now, When I ask students every year in a really riveting U.S. government class, they will attest to the fact that it is riveting because we study the essentials of of history with respect to our founding, and then we really focus on the United States Constitution. We sort of treat it like a law school course where we break the Constitution apart. Now, That's not what we're going to do today. Today, we're just going to talk about the Constitution in in a high-level sort of way. So one of the questions I ask at the beginning of the year is, when was the United States founded? And that's always an interesting question to ask students because the typical answer is July 4th, 
1776. It's the day we celebrate as Independence Day, and most of you know the reason for that is is that the Declaration of Independence was signed on that date by most of the people who signed it. So my students are smart, very smart, and they're, they're well taught by the time they get to me in 11th or 12th grade. And, and they know that a guy named Richard Henry Lee of Virginia proposed a resolution in Congress stating that the colonies are free and independent states. He did this in June of 1776. Now, prior to this, there had been some fighting that had taken place between British troops and American colonists. But for the most part, even in 1775, just a year earlier, most of the colonists thought of themselves as British citizens. There were some things going on that they didn't they didn't like uh, with respect to King George III. And you probably know, for example, about the East India Tea Company. He gave them a monopoly. Uh, you know that several congresses, one in Albany, New York in particular, developed for purposes associated with King George III or driven by King George III, and those turned into kind of organizing meetings for the colonists and their independence. Nonetheless, well-known guy named Thomas Jefferson, whose education is a fascinating story. He was educated at William and Mary, and his sons uh, went to uh, University of Virginia, a school that he founded. Uh, another story for another day. But Thomas Jefferson wrote most of this beautiful document, which is really a breakup letter if you read it. And he wrote it on July 2nd, 1776. That's when he started his writing, as far as we know. Two days later, this document was approved by the delegates. There were two material changes that happened in this Declaration of Independence. First, the colonists now saw themselves as Americans and no longer as British, and that's significant. And second, they began to see themselves as a united country and not 13 autonomous entities. Nonetheless, they embraced this document that we called, uh, approved later, this document that we called the Articles of Confederation. Those were attempts to good attempts by smart people to unite our country and create some sense of federalism. The Articles of Confederation are an interesting study. It's not our purpose to do so today. I would bore you if I discussed the Articles of Confederation on a podcast, except to say they were weak because they didn't address something that had to be addressed, and that is money. The relationship between government and the economy is fascinating. I graph for the students in the second semester of my course, which is economics, macroeconomics. I graph the economic cycles over the years going all the way back to the late 1700s. And I highlight government intervention in the economy. In fact, you can go all the way back to our founding you know, when I when I was a kid, I think we studied history a little differently, or perhaps I don't remember it, but I didn't really realize that the colonies were founded for economic purposes by Great Britain. Now, of course, there was religious freedom in mind. There was business opportunity. There was exploration. But 
there was also the economy, economic motivation. So we have this Declaration of Independence. We now have the Articles of Confederation. And we realized during this this period, this intervening period from about 1776, maybe let's say June, July 1776 through 17, the mid-1780s, we realized that this, this union uh, worked to some degree, but because we hadn't contemplated taxation, we realized that we needed another document. And the U.S. Constitution, the Constitution of the United States, was born. This beautiful preamble says, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, you see they already had a union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Now, this big, beautiful document, well, not so big at 4,400 words, but this powerful document was intended to limit the size of federal government and to prescribe the way that the federal government, let's call it federalism, interacted or interfaced with these 13 states. Now, these men were landowners. They were wealthy, white landowners. They didn't quite know what to do with women or slaves in terms of addressing them in this document, and they found a way to do so, and we'll talk about that in a moment. They were flawed. They were flawed sinners. Our worldview, if we're Christians and we understand Scripture, informs us of their depravity. So to, to sugarcoat this and say that these men were perfect and are to be deified would be a stretch. However, it would also be a shame to discredit their effort because these men were brilliant. Their interface together was brilliant. Now, history tells us that Ben Franklin was in poor health during this time, but was probably the most influential delegate. There are so many facts that we could talk about, such as he hired four prisoners to supposedly carry him into the sessions, at least some of them when he wasn't ambulatory in a chair. There are movies and musicals and other plays and books written on these subjects, on the subject of this convention at which the U.S. Constitution was written. Another example of interesting history to me is, is James Madison. He was a Federalist, as you know, as was Alexander Hamilton. And, you know, we've talked before about Hamilton's story. It's, it's I believe, in the second episode of, of Relentless Truth, we discussed him. And he's an interesting character all to his own. But so is James Madison. James Madison was the scribe. He was the guy who was elected to take notes during this Constitutional Convention. Now, Madison and all of the other delegates agreed that the notes, the discussions, the interface in the room in Philadelphia, wherein the U.S. Constitution was written, would be confidential. 
And they also agreed that his notes would remain confidential until the last delegate died. The last delegate to die would then free up these notes. So, interestingly, James Madison was the last delegate to die. He lived the longest of all of these delegates. So, Madison's the note taker. A guy named Shallus was the actual guy who wrote the Constitution, who, who actually penned it, who wrote it on paper as it was prescribed by the delegates. Now, you've heard a lot of talk about the U.S. Constitution. Now, I'm not going to bore you by reading the entire document to you, but there are some interesting sections that I believe deserve maybe just a quick mention. There's Article 1. And, and now, the U.S. Constitution is, is broken up into, into several articles. If memory serves, it's eight. It is. It's eight total articles. The first three are significant because there was great debate about the number of branches of government. So Article 1 is all about legislative powers that are granted, that are vested in the Congress, the United States Congress. Now, when we say the Congress, we're, in terms of voting members, there are some non-voting members for U.S. territories, but in terms of voting members, we're talking about 435 people in the House of Representatives. We have what is called a bicameral Congress. That means two chambers. So the second group, the second chamber is the U.S. Senate. Now, the Constitution describes, and it's, it's amazing how enduring these concepts have been and how they, how they work, and we're going to talk about why they work in a moment. Document isn't perfect. It's flawed, and we're even going to point out a couple of the flaws. But, but this document is enduring because of several compromises that were reached. Now, you can imagine these high-powered, well-educated, brilliant, for the most part, men in a room trying to work out a document that would be the guidepost, would be the beacon, would be the lighthouse for this great experiment called the United States of America. And they wanted it to be a better lighthouse than the one they had built before called the Articles of Confederation. So we have two chambers. That was one of the compromises. One of the compromises was between the larger states and the smaller states. And that's significant because we only had 13 states back then, but they had different interests. We had a primarily agrarian economy, that is, one that focused on agriculture, even in the northeastern states or colonies. And that also made life interesting. We Travel was more complex, as you know. And so nonetheless, we, 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 one of the compromises reached was a way to kind of satisfy the needs of the large states and the smaller states. And that was this notion of this bicameral Congress. And the way they set it up was brilliant. It was the House was based on population, and they went to great lengths in Article 1. You can read it for yourself to describe how this would be, would be done. They even contemplate a census uh, every 10 years, and then they describe districts, in the Congress, and all the rest. And then for all of the states, for the smaller states in particular, though, 
the other part of the bicameral Congress, the second chamber, the higher chamber, if you will, was to be the U.S. Senate. That body, that austere body, often referenced as the greatest deliberative body in the world, is described sort of on the second page of the Constitution in Article 1, Section 3. Brilliantly, these men decided that the Senate would be elected as follows. There would be 100 senators today, but back then just two from each state. Today we have 100, 435 members of the House. And so each state gets two senators who don't come from districts. So each senator represents the entire state. In Florida, where I live, we have Marco Rubio and Rick Scott. They don't have districts they represent. We don't have one representing the southern part of the state or and another representing the northern part of the state. They each serve all of the residents of the state of Florida. Contrary to that is the House, where each House member, all 435 of them, represent a specific district. Now, sure, they represent the best interest of the state as well, but they actually are elected in districts that are determined by this census. So this beautiful document says in Article 1 that a representative, a member of the House, must have reached the age of 25 years and have been a a resident, a citizen of the United States for seven years. The other requirement is that the person who's elected to the House must be an inhabitant of the state in which he's chosen. So they go on to describe the way that elections will occur, the way that taxes will be apportioned. And, And one of the things that is interesting, and you hear a lot of chatter about this, is this three-fifths compromise. You might have heard of this. It's, it's the reference to slaves and Indians, and it references slaves as other persons. It doesn't call them, this document doesn't call them slaves. And it, what it says is that the distribution of taxes, the way federal taxes are apportioned among the several states, is determined, and I'll quote, by adding to the number, the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, and three-fifths of all other persons. So you've heard that our founders thought the slaves were not valuable as people because of this reference to three-fifths. I would argue that it's really worse than that. If you think about it, what they agreed to do is allow the counting of 60% of the slaves for the distribution of taxes to the states, thereby rewarding the slave states, thereby encouraging the, the taking of slaves, the having of slaves. So... And they they go on, this document goes on to talk about how this enumeration is made, how taxes get divided, and so on. And then we segue to this austere body called the Senate. Now, this is fascinating to me, and we're, we're just doing Constitution Light today, because after all, this is a podcast. But 
think about this for a second. They talk about the Senate, and they the, the Senate has an advice and consent role with the president. And what that means is the U.S. Senate actually enjoys a closer relationship with the president. And that's a, a good and bad thing. That sort has two edges. The Senate can actually remove a president from office through something called cases of impeachment referenced at the end of Section 3. But there's this fascinating thing in Section 3 with respect to the way senators are elected. And you probably know this already. It can be confusing when you have things like that Georgia senatorial election to replace other people. And so the timing of this is, is a little unusual. But what they set up in the Constitution is the fact that one-third of the Senate is elected every two years. House members must run for re-election every two years. The entire House is elected. And you might not have known that, but it's elected every two years. The Senate is not. The Senate serves for six-year terms. And I've actually investigated this, and I don't remember it, but I believe we've had some people approach 50 years of service in total in the Senate. So I guess term limits is another discussion for another day, but suffice it to say, the only term limiting feature we have in this Constitution is elections. So the House runs every two years, and a third of the Senate is reelected every two years, but senators serve six-year terms, so they're staggered terms. And when they set it up initially, they brilliantly describe this. And that means that a third of the U.S. Senate is up for election every two years while the entire House is up for election. There's a bias we have in this country that you may have noticed. It's an incumbency advantage. And that that is because of a number of factors. First, these senators and these members of the House have greater access to the press, typically, than their challengers do in subsequent elections. Secondly, they can vote on things that might make them more popular while they're serving. But there's another thing called franking privilege that I want to tell you about. You might not be aware of it. I will guarantee you you've seen the outcome of it. And that is those cards that you get in the mail or newsletters that you receive from your elected members of Congress, both House and Senate. Those things are most often paid for by the taxpayers. They get a budget and they can send self-promoting material to you and to me as long as it doesn't violate our election laws. It's as long as it's not a campaign piece and it just says, look at me, I'm wonderful. Here's what I'm doing. And they can do so at the taxpayer's expense. So the incumbency advantage in, an, in a congressional election is tremendous. Now, the U.S. Constitution beautifully describes what goes on in the next section in our elections. Now, Congress can make or alter re election regulations. And this is where we have some confusion. However, the election of members of the House and members of the Senate happens, according to the Constitution, shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. So the Congress has this overarching authority, but each state conducts elections. 
Now, you might remember the 2000 election wherein George Bush and Al Gore had this closely contested election. And if you lived in Florida, you learned what a Chad is that year. And I learned that other states didn't necessarily conduct elections the way Florida does. In fact, it is still the case that ballots are different from state to state. Even the methodology of voting, in some states it's electronic, in other states it's still done by paper. In Florida now, it's done by filling in an oval next to the candidate of choice. Well, back in the the election of 2000, because states conducted their own election, Florida employed at all precincts, as far as I know, kind of a hole punch system. And we learned during the the period where the election was contested after the second Tuesday in November of that year, we learned what a hanging chad is. Now, a hanging chad or a chad is that little piece of paper that is vacated when a hole is punched in the paper. And what happened with a number of ballots, and this wouldn't have probably even been material in a typical election, but because this one was so closely contested in Florida, it became important. And what, hap- what happened is the Chad wasn't punched well by some people, didn't, didn't vacate the hole thoroughly, kind of hung there. And then when the ballot was put through a reader, the roller in the ballot closed the hole. And what we found was thousands of people's vote for president didn't get counted. And so we had to do hand counts and recounts There were lawsuits all over. And this wasn't just true of Florida. It happened in other states as well. And you probably also remember the 2016 election that was closely contested between President Trump and Hillary Clinton. And you know that President Trump did not win the popular vote, but won the electoral vote. Now, this beautiful Constitution also discusses in a, in a later article, discusses this electoral college, the electoral system for voting for president. Now, some of the aspects of the body of the Constitution have obviously been amended by these beautiful 27 amendments, and we're not going to have time today to go through them all. In fact, we're just hitting the highlights today. But it's, it's interesting that this, this matter of uh, closely contested elections has come into play several times. And it's made younger people, and perhaps some older people too, kind of frown and say, what is this electoral college? And it's it's really interesting. Most states are winner-take-all states. So if a candidate wins a state, particularly let's go to Florida since I live there, if you win Florida by a vote, then you win all, I believe it's 27 electoral votes. And at the end of the election, all of the electoral votes are totaled, and we then have a certified election results. I believe it's the Senate that certifies the election results, and we install, we inaugurate a new president. Well, what's interesting about this is this notion of, of, hey, my candidate won the popular vote, but, but they don't get to be president, and so that makes us... Uh, who uh, those of us who just love democracy, uh, democratic elections, let's say it, it, just feel like we've done something wrong in electing the president. I would argue, though, 
that if we just use democratic election processes and not this electoral, this brilliant electoral process, that candidates would only run, would only campaign in the larger states, in the heavily populated states. In fact, you could even make an argument that you wouldn't have to do much campaigning outside of California, Texas, Florida, and New York. You might hit a couple of other big cities or states. And that would leave out the smaller states from the process. As it is, the candidates go to state fairs and and they start in places like Iowa and in some of the New England states. It's kind of a beautiful thing, the way politics works, as ugly as it can be and as frustrating it can be as it can be because of this at the presidential level, because of this electoral college. Several people, including Ben Franklin, were concerned about having mob rule. So there's a spectrum that I often talk about in class, and that is we have tyranny on one side and mob rule on the other. Now, we kind of err in this country toward mob rule, don't we? We allow lots of protesting. We, we have democratic-styled elections, which is interesting, and yet we're not a democracy. We are a republic, and I'm going to prove it to you in just a moment. It's, it's in this beautiful constitution, and we'll get there in just a second. So that's really how elections work. We've had several elections, as I mentioned, that included a popular vote that wasn't consistent with the Electoral College. But for the most part, over all of these 200 plus years, we've not had too many controversial elections for president. The Senate, if you run for Senate, you've got to be five years older than than running for the House. You've got to be 30 years old. And uh, there, there are some other qualifications that are outlined in the Constitution. Senate tries impeachments, uh, as I mentioned, and they've only done that a few times. They most recently tried President Trump and a supermajority is required. And that would be, if my math is good, that would be 67 senators would have to vote for impeachment. And I believe 50 something did. So he, he had a simple majority that voted to remove him from office, but he, they did not have the required supermajority. So fascinating document, beautiful document. And that, that really is article one. Now, interestingly, I'm going to talk just a bit more about one more section of article one, because you hear this referenced all the time. You hear section eight referenced. Now, section eight in article one starts with this. It says the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes and duties and excises and go on. And it goes on. It's actually, this is actually the section, that specific section is the one that, among others, that separates this document, the U.S. Constitution, from the weaker Articles of Confederation. And I can see as I read this, I can see James Madison's influence and Alexander Hamilton's influence and others. You see, Hamilton kind of traveled around to the states and got the word out to the states that what he advocated as kind of the economist slash banker involved in this is the federal government, this new federalism taking on the debt of the states. Now, there's a sentence in this section. So these are the section eight is the enumerated powers of Congress. It, it lists the power of Congress. This is a, this is a restraining section 
it says Congress can really only do these things. Now, there are a couple of sentences that you're going to find troubling and I find troubling in this beautiful document. A couple of sentences that with hindsight, I would say maybe aren't perfect. One is, and we're living with this now with almost $30 trillion in national debt, there's a sentence that says, to borrow money on the credit of the United States. So the Congress has this authority. And there's another one, another sentence that says, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. Now, that's known as the Commerce Clause. So, so Congress has the ability to borrow money. They have the ability to regulate commerce between the states. And that, that regulation is spelled out elsewhere as well. And doctrines like uh, if you're married in one state, you're married in all the states. If you have a driver's license in one state, you can drive in all of the states while you're traveling. So this document is beautifully written. And this section eight spells out the power limiting, the enumerated powers of Congress. And there's a lot of legal theory here that we could talk about. And it's tempting to, I'm stuttering now because I'm wondering how much of that to tell you in this episode. So I think we're going to, we're going to skip that for now. And we might come back to the enumerated powers of Congress, but it's just, it's just fascinating. It's a, it's a limiting document. I mentioned earlier this this notion of this this fear of tyranny versus mob rule and you kind of see that come up a lot in the as you study the theory in the US Constitution these these limited powers are limited to avoid a tyrannical to limit a tyrannical government to protect us to give us liberty and protect us against a tyrannical government now the the liberty paradox is a beautiful thing it's it really says that for me to have liberty, I have to give up some liberty. For us to have collective liberty, we have to give up some individual liberty. So I can't fire a cannon in my backyard or in my neighborhood. I can't have a bonfire or, or shoot an armadillo or a possum or a rodent because I have to give up some liberty. I can't blast loud, beautiful music by my pool. I have to play it softly because my neighbors also have liberties and we, we give up liberties to have liberty. Well, this beautiful document, particularly in Section 8, limits the reach of Congress. And some of you who are well-schooled on the U.S. Constitution are already thinking, is he going to mention the Elastic Clause? Now, this, is, this one is interesting I have to say, I wish this clause was not in this document because it has allowed Congress, it's called the Elastic Clause because it's allowed Congress to stretch the Constitution. I'm going to read it to you. It's right at the end of Section 8. It says, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Now, Congress gets bored rather quickly and they stop reading after this, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper. Now, that's not what it says. That's not what Section 8 is all about. Congress can't just rule on anything it chooses to rule on. And we could talk about specific powers and abuses by Congress. We won't do that right now. You could even make an argument that uh, the Department of Education on a federal level isn't, isn't listed in Section 8. Sometimes you hear that, well, 
that's that's part of the general welfare and general welfare is referenced well if you if you use that doctrine then you can you can have the federal government specifically the congress do most anything and that's kind of how they've acted from time to time but this elastic clause actually says to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this constitution in the government of the United States or any department or officer thereof. Since we're just hitting the highlights, we're going to we're going to move on to article 2. Article 2 is all about the national executive and believe it or not, there was great debate at the constitutional convention and in our society at large about whether we even needed a national executive. Now, can you imagine no national executive? We'd still have to have an executive branch. So the way the three branches work, well, they're, they're addressed this way. Article one of the Constitution addresses the Congress. Article two, the presidency, the executive branch. And, and, and so we've got legislative in Article one, executive in Article two, and then the judicial branch, the judiciary, is addressed in Article three. So the president has to be 35 years old and serves a term of four years together with a vice president. Now, the way the president and vice president are elected, the way the vice president in particular runs with the president is a relatively new thing that happened because of an amendment that we'll talk about in a subsequent episode. But, but today, the president and vice president, as you know, they run together on what we call a ticket We now have two parties, and so we have primaries, and we elect the president. The president must have been a natural-born citizen, must be 35 years old, and must have lived in the United States for 14 years prior to their election. Now, it's interesting that this Article 2 is more brief than Article 1. It lays out things like the president being commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy. doesn't mention the Air Force because there wasn't one at the time. And, and the militia, it mentions, it mentions this advice and consent role of the Senate. And then it mentions that the president can do some appointments with this advice and consent role. So the president can't just say, here's my cabinet. These are the Supreme Court justices. They have to go through the Senate And the Senate exercises that advice and consent role that can be messy. That made us cringe last year. Made us cringe the year before. As President Trump nominated a couple of conservative justices. And it really makes me cringe every time a new president is elected and cabinet members are appointed. And we get to often watch, because some of them are public, these hearings where these people are questioned and you see the grandstanding of the senators and the inappropriate questions along with the appropriate questions and the appropriate speeches that happen. So this government is messy by design. Article three is about the judicial power of the United States. I often tell my students that although it's the shortest, it's the most brief of these three articles describing these three branches of these beautiful branches of government in this beautiful U.S. Constitution, although it's most brief, it's probably the most weighty. Five people, that is, 
five justices of the U.S. Supreme Court can decide, and often do decide, what the U.S. Constitution says, what it means. They interpret the Constitution. What I'm about to say is a gross simplification, but they actually almost exclusively decide how to interpret and apply the Constitution. So the Congress makes the laws. The president, the executive branch, the largest branch of government in terms of the number of employees, that they actually carry out the laws. And the Supreme Court, the judiciary, decides what the law actually means. They interpret this document. Now, our founders would cringe if they could hear us saying things like we have six conservative justices and three liberal justices today, but we do. They wouldn't have thought of justices as being political types, but they are to some degree. John Roberts sort of confounds people. We don't know quite whether we have a five to four conservative court or a six to three, depending on kind of how he votes, but we, we do basically have six conservative Justices. Now, you'll, you won't see referenced in Article 3, you won't see any reference whatsoever to this notion of nine justices on the Supreme Court. So there's this talk today of packing the court, which really means expanding it. And yes, that could be done by the Congress. So this Article 3 describes several specialty courts but it really describes the, the U.S. Supreme Court, and, and there's one line that says something about in, and inferior courts. And so what we have in the court system is the U.S. District Courts, U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Supreme Court, just three primary layers. We have a bankruptcy court, tax court, and some other courts. But really, we just have three layers, U.S. District Court, U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, and United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court primarily, unless we're talking about a dispute from state to state or state to federal government, the Supreme Court is primarily an appellate court. And so is the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. So most federal cases are resolved, are ruled on in the U.S. District Court. So there's a carve out for impeachment. That happens. Those trials happen in the in the Senate. And uh, that's that's really it. It's the, the shortest uh, article of the three articles that describe the three branches of the government. There, there are only two mentions of religion in the United States Constitution. I'm going to talk about those, and then I'm going to wrap this discussion of the U.S. Constitution for today. There's so much more to say, but there's this talk of, and you have to go all the way back to Article 6, the second to the last article in the U.S. Constitution, this no religious test. I remember Hillary Clinton saying it in the election that was contested between she and Donald Trump in 2016. There can be no religious test. Well, here's what it says. It says, but no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Believe it or not, that's the only reference to religion in the body of the Constitution. The only other reference is in the First Amendment that says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We'll talk more later about in this series on the U.S. Constitution about what those two things mean. But simply today, 
what the reference about uh, on religious test means is that we can't have a religious test for holding office, for holding a federal job. We can't just hire Protestants or Catholics or Muslims. We can't exclude people because of their religion. We can't include them because of their religion. We can't have a religious test as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Now, there's another, there's so many of these, but there's another really cool clause called the Supremacy Clause, and it says that this shall be the supreme law of the land. This document, it says, I'll read it to you. The Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. And all of the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. So this supremacy clause means that any contract you or I engage in, any document for any club, any bylaws for a corporation, any state laws, any any state constitution, any city charter, all of those documents are inferior to this beautiful 4,400-word U.S. Constitution. So we'll talk about Articles 4 and following next time, but I want to look just for a moment. I want to contrast, and this is, this is going to be kind of strange for, for a, a moment. I, I want to contrast the, the Constitution to Scripture. So Scripture, the Bible, doesn't limit our authority, isn't a a kind of an outline. It isn't a guidebook on which we can add things we wish God had revealed to us. It is God's complete, holy, inspired word for us. And since I've been reading in the book of James, I I, I want to just look at a quick section in closing that will, I, I think, maybe make that point quite well. It's talking about, James is talking about in chapter two, the sin of partiality. Now just listen to this. Here's what it says in the English Standard Version. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich one the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And he goes on. So we don't have time to fully uh, exegete this passage to, to read out of it what it says fully. But suffice it to say, he's talking about our behavior. And he's talking about this thing that we do. It is just human to do. And that is respecting some people over other people. The juxtaposition of this in the U.S. Constitution is fascinating to me, and I'm not going to take the time to develop it well, 
But isn't it interesting that this scripture goes to our hearts, our sin nature? And yes, we are being transformed. We're going through metamorphosis. We're not to be conformed to this world, but transformed through the renewing of our minds. This is the beauty of God's scripture, God's word, God's holy inspired word for us. This U.S. Constitution, on the other hand, is a beautiful document, but it's not inspired. It's not even comprehensive. It's a government-limiting outline. And it is that interpretation of the Constitution by the courts and even the media. If you notice, one of the things the media loves to do is call this country a democracy. And I know what they mean, and they're not altogether wrong. We have democratic elections, but we are a republic. We are a representative form of government. If we weren't, you and I would vote on every law, every legal matter that comes before the Congress. So we elect representatives and we call it a Republican form of government. In fact, the Constitution says it guarantees to every state a Republican form of government. God's word is beautiful. It's alive. It changes as we read it. We'll, we'll read it again and again and read something new out of a passage That's not how the U.S. Constitution works. It's a government-limiting document. It's a man-made document written by flawed men, many of whom owned slaves and saw women as necessary but not really equal and certainly saw slaves as necessary economically in many cases. So, sharp distinction. I hope this has been meaningful. Next time we'll talk about articles four and following, and I'll give you a few examples. We're going to go to the amendments at some point, and I think you'll really enjoy that. And I'm going to talk about some of those in the context of current events. I am grieved that we have almost $30 trillion in debt, and we are currently, as I'm recording this, Congress is looking at a three and a half to $5 trillion infrastructure package. That is deeply, deeply concerning because we're leaving debt for future generations and putting our economy at risk. So we'll talk about some current events as we finish up the Constitution over the next couple of episodes. I hope you'll join me. Thank you for supporting the Relentless Truth podcast by liking, sharing, reviewing, and otherwise subscribing. You can find us wherever you get podcasts at Apple Music or iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and others. Please go to johnwarrenmedia.com if you'd like more information or for more information on our sponsor, CFS Financial. So thank you for being here, and I look forward to being with you again next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. John Warren.